private journey with Jesus is just the beginning. Connecting with others intensifies our light. Together we bring hope to the world. Christ, you, me, Cola. Today we're pushing on in our series called Collab through the book of Philippians. Now, Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote whilst he was in jail to the folks from the town of Philippi in the greater Macedonian area, which we now know as Greece. And so therefore we're looking at a story here unfolding, a story of Paul being the senior statesman of the faith, a man who has already walked a significant walk under persecution and learnt to share his faith and build the church in ways that have just gone on, of course, to be where we are now, 2,000 years later, those seeds planted. And so we're looking at a time of transition in Paul's life where he's wanting to see that the fruit of his life... That right there? Yep. That fruit is remaining. We want to be able to see that, that evidence we just saw a moment ago... Um, with the Pedersen family here, three generations, fruit that's remaining. And so it's really exciting to be able to get an example of what Paul was on when he was trying to cause his folks to get on well together. Last week I called the sermon Empty because it talks about, the scriptures talk about the emptying of ourselves and how we are to be emptied of our own vain and conceited ambitions but to be filled with the purposes of Jesus. And that's easy to talk about, but darn sight harder to do, wouldn't you agree? And so we have to look at this and start building into our lives what it is that Paul uses to empower himself to ensure that the life that we lead, the life that his disciples lead, is a life filled with Christ, not a life filled with fear or filled with other people's expectations or filled with our own selfish ambitions. And so today, as we've called this we need to have a look at last week's talk and the centrality of Jesus and how he has this huge influence in the way that Paul sees the Christian life. It goes without saying, really, doesn't it, that to be a Christian, you need to put the values of Jesus right at the center. And so Paul, talking to the Philippians, talks about their relationships. And he says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Now there's been something going on in the Corinthian church that we haven't picked up on in this series. Should I say, sorry, in the Philippian church, and it's found in Corinthians, in the Corinthian letter. There's been a famine in the area of Jerusalem. And in that area of Jerusalem where the church, the fathers of the church, were founded in the area where Jesus left them there in Jerusalem at Pentecost. And we find that this, this response, there's been a response from the church, 
from around the wider part of the known world at that time to this famine that's been going on in Jerusalem. And Paul speaks to this incredible generosity that was displayed by the churches of Philippi and the Macedonian, the Greek region, and their generosity to those in Jerusalem, the fathers of the faith, when they were really, really struggling. And we do this sort of thing today, don't we? We see where other parts of the world are struggling, and so we bring our resources, our finances, and we, we send them off and we package them up to help people who are really, really struggling. Let's just remind ourselves from 2 Corinthians just what Paul thought about this generous offer that was made to the Jerusalem church by the Philippians and the Macedonians from Greece. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. Well, you couldn't ask for a more glowing review, could you, of the generosity of the Macedonian churches of which the Philippian church was one. They heard of this, this disaster that was befalling Jerusalem in the area as they ran out of food, ran out of money. And here is Paul. There's a sense in which Paul was so overwhelmed by their generosity because these weren't a rich people. In fact, Paul said they pleaded with the privilege to give. They pleaded for the privilege to give, and in doing so, they gave out of their poverty rather than out of their, their wealth, which, of course, is received as a sacrifice unto God. And they gave themselves to the Lord first and then to the work of the Lord afterwards. And so here's this background story, and we're going to pick up on it in a a few moments because it's significant in the way that Paul values the life of this church. But let's push into what it is that Paul's talking to us now from uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firm to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, there's a great set of words, aren't they? A great set of words. Some verses here that talk about how it is that we are poured out, how we are called to a, a life of service. But This service is a service that allows us to get on with one another without arguing, without grumbling. But to get there, you've got to go past these these verses, which I think are quite challenging. In fact, they, they always challenged me. The first part of it says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Let's stop right there for a second. Paul's talking in a 
in a way that commends them for their behavior. You see, it's easy for any person to behave well when the school teacher is in the classroom. How can you remember the times when the school teacher was in the classroom? And then you remember the times when the school teacher wasn't in the classroom? How many of you are school teachers and know exactly what I'm talking about? Of course you do. And we're all, we've got this thing called this human condition. It says when the authority figure is not amongst us, it's very easy to misbehave. And so here we find the, uh, the Apostle Paul commending these folks for their behavior, not only in his presence, but in his absence. And, and that's, that's the nature of maturity, isn't it? And it's not one that we always pass. I know when I was a teenager, about the tender age of about 18, just started work, and my parents took my younger brother and sister on a holiday overseas, but because now I was a working man, I had to stay at home. And uh, the, the boys from the rugby team decided that uh, there needed to be a party at Craig's place because his parents were away. And of course, uh, I didn't object very much at all, except when I had to clean up the mess afterwards. And so here I was behaving differently in the, my parents' absence, absence, abscess, absence, than I was in their presence. My maturity was such that I didn't actually deliver on their expectations. I'm just hoping I've improved since. But here we have Paul commending people for their behavior when they only have God and God alone, when there is an audience of one. And this is where our maturity should be measured, when we have an audience of one, God of heaven and earth, who, who watches over us, cares for us, and tends to our needs. At the same time, he calls us to account for our behaviors. But Paul goes on to say, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I thought, when I first read this, I thought, gosh, there's something going on here that tells me that I should walk around in fear and trembling about my salvation. Maybe, maybe my salvation is actually on a bit of a knife edge. Maybe it's really easy to lose it. You've seen the uh, pictures, the ge geography pictures of the uh, Razorback Ridges. Some of them run through our country. We literally have a pathway, just a small animal track. And as you walk, you can fall to the left or to the right, and it's pretty well, it's all over Mr. Rover. Okay? And, and it gives this impression, this fear and trembling with which we're to work out our salvation. But the context is a bigger picture than this, and we've already seen it, we've already run over it in chapter 1. And I want to show us what it is this context is. It's actually about the persecution that Paul was facing, as well as this young fledgling church in Philippi. You see, to be a Christian in these days was to be outside of the norm. To be Jewish was okay. To serve and worship the foreign gods that the Romans had was to be okay. Was to, to, to worship the Greek gods, that was okay. But this new person of Jesus Christ, that was causing a, a level of intimidation for them. Now, Paul was a tent maker. And so his pattern was to go into a town and to get involved with the Tent Makers Guild. Now, a guild was a very powerful organization, a little bit like a union. And the guild would allow you to do your work and you would look out for one another, etc., etc. But guilds also had their own gods. So you had the god of the guild. And Paul would go into the guild and he would then spend 12 hours a day, usually cross-legged, stitching, making tents as a tent maker. And there he had the freedom to talk about his God, the Son of God, 
Jesus Christ who, who died for our sins and was raised again to new life. And this story he would have told with, with great vigor and enthusiasm and great experience. And over time, people who he would have been working with would have come to know the Lord, would have come to faith. I've seen this happening over in India. We, uh, we support from this church the work of Freeset in Kolkata, where women are brought off the streets who have been in prostitution and are given jobs, usually in the uh, sewing industry, and they are given great jobs, uh, medical packages, retirement packages, and are returned back to what we would see as normal life outside of prostitution. But when they turn up, they turn up, and within a week or so, they, they put pictures of their gods on the, on the wall above their sewing machines. And because this is a Christian community, after a period of time, what will happen is a picture of Jesus will appear as well on the wall beside the other gods. And what Kerry Hilton and Annie Hilton tell us, who lead this ministry, is that over time, the other gods disappear and the picture of Jesus remains. And this is a very similar scenario to a guild when you're all working together and the gods that were are no longer and the new God has come. But this causes persecution. And we've seen how this persecution, as we know, would cause fear and trembling in a person's life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 27 to 30, let's just remind ourselves of what Paul spoke to them. He said, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So these folks are suffering in their faith. And when you're suffering, there's every understanding that you'd be frightened. There's every expectation that you'll be frightened. So when you're working out your faith with fear and trembling, this is because you're living out your faith in the midst of a persecution that is real and confrontational. At the same time, there was another group of people who were giving Paul's church a hard time. Uh, these are the Judaizers, and Paul addresses them later on in chapter 3. But again, because we're talking about the fear and trembling that these folks are facing, it's better to have a look at this now. It says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord, it is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. There's a whole lot of Jewish code word going on here. Okay, it was really quite simple. Paul is saying, you don't have to be a Jew before you become a Christian. And the whole idea here is that Paul is saying, we're being intimidated by these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh. And the mutilation of the flesh he's referring to is, is male circumcision. So what's happening here is that Paul is uh, raising people to be followers of Jesus, men and women. And this other group who are Christians but are saying you've got to keep the Old Testament law, are getting alongside these new Christians and Paul's congregation 
And he's saying, look, it's all very well for you to be a follower of Jesus, but you know you've got to fulfill the Old Testament requirements, don't you? You don't eat this food, you've got to worship in this way, and circumcision's all part of it. Look, um, it's a bit of a game changer for the blokes, that. It really is. You know, if we had that as part of our Alpha course, people would be eating outside rather than inside, wondering whether they should be in or out. And this is the problem that uh, Paul was facing. With this intimidation, these folks were being intimidated in the wrong way. They weren't being drawn into the love of Christ. They were being intimidated by a law book which says that they have to act. And, and that's what Paul says at the end there. Uh, and who put no confidence in the flesh. We boast in Christ alone. This isn't about law keeping. This isn't about Old Testament. This isn't about being a Jew. It's about being a follower of Jesus. So here are these two sides that are intimidating Paul, sorry, intimidating Paul and his church. Uh, it causes fear and trembling. So now we've got a little bit of background. Let's push on. And Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Or his good purpose. And it's this word fulfill that Paul is focusing on here. And it's the word that I want to focus on today. Because our lives are there for God to fill. When God is fulfilling his purposes through us, it is his will, his goals being outworked in our lives. And that's why last week I said we had to be empty before we could be filled. And so this morning as we talk about being fulfilled, it's being filled with the will and the purposes of God. And, and Paul goes on to say, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars, like stars. We often ask that question, how do we, how do we know God's will? You know, if we are to be filled with God's will, then how do we know God's will? Well, we often make it a lot more complicated. We sort of think, oh, there has to be this bright light experience like Saul had when he was converted on the road to Damascus. Or we have to have this break out of jail experience uh, like Peter and John did as they were being persecuted and thrown in jail. Or we have to have, and we try to outwork somebody else's expectations or somebody else's life experience in our own lives. The first thing we have to do is position ourselves to know God's will and to be able to, be, to, be able to fulfill God's will. And that comes down to character. All that Paul is talking about in this chapter that we're looking at looking at, is about relationships. You know that your life is just one continuous series of relationships that are refreshed and renewed and built and rebuilt. And how we actually outwork ourselves in these relationships is the most vital part about being human, isn't it? And the most vital part about being Christian. And so when people say, what is it that is God's will for me? God's will, firstly, is that our character is shaped into the person of Jesus. I know when I meet some saint, somebody who's been around for a long time and have just given their life over to Christ, and you can see the evidence of that. What I'm looking for and often see is, is the evidence in their character. You see, the difficult challenge that we all face 
is that we might want some level of responsibility. But if our character isn't equal to that, then when the responsibility comes, we fail because our character has let us down. And so whenever you find somebody who's developed a fantastic mission work somewhere in the middle of nowhere and God is using them, the thing that you can guarantee that you will find is a depth of character in that person. And so Paul is saying, how do you shape character? He's saying you create character in your life by working hard at getting on with other people. Don't grumble, don't moan, don't whinge, don't whine, don't argue, all those normal things. Because if we can work hard at that stuff, everything else falls into place because our character is being shaped. We are being refined, and therefore we have responsibilities given to us. That's how we position ourselves to find God's will. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything will be added unto you. All these things will be added unto you. Often, when we're looking for God's will, we can have this vision of what it is that others should be doing with their lives or for us. And we have expectations upon other people which are really unfair. And that's very easy. Uh, you know, we find that this criticism in the, in, the, in the church life can come along like this. It's like, oh, you know, if that church would be so much better if only people did this. Okay? You ever had those thoughts? I'm sure you have. It's very easy for us to have thoughts about the will of God for other people. Very easy. It's very normal. Some years ago, um, I studied this uh, German theologian called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, it was quite funny, actually. Only last week I was chatting to Colin Grutzmarker about his work out at, at um, Papamore. And, uh, and he said, oh, did you know that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this? And I went and leaned over my bag and I pulled out my book where the quote came from and I happened to be reading it at the same time. So we're sort of on the same page. But we talked about this particular paragraph that Bonhoeffer said, which has really sort of challenged us both. So we might as well challenge you with it too. Um, it says here, God hates visionary dreaming. It's like, wow, what's all this about? Let me read it to you and I'll put it in its context. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if <clears throat> he acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community. As if his dream binds men together. <clears throat> when things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first the accuser of the brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser despairing accuser of himself. Now what this guy is saying is that if we have a visionary dream of how others are to behave, you know, if you knew the will of God, you'd be just like me. Okay? If you knew the will of God, you'd do what I do. 
In fact, you should do what I do because I do what Jesus does. Hey, that's starting to get a little bit close to the bone, isn't it? That's starting to get a little bit, I'm better than you-ish. Do you like that? When you're being shut all over, you should do this, you should do that, you should do this. And this is what Bonhoeffer is saying. Bonhoeffer lived in the, in the early part of last century. He was, uh, he was executed by the Nazis for his faith. He was accused, mostly say, most say wrongly, for plotting to kill Hitler. But he lived in a Christian community. And this is from his book called Life Together. So he was living in a community where there are a whole lot of people who came with all of their ideals of how Christian community should be outworked. And he came to a very quick realization that it's those who hold the highest dreams for what other people should be doing with their lives are the ones that cause the greatest amount of grief. And here we are in this tension of wanting to live what it is that God calls us to and at the same time not being accusing and condemning of our brothers and sisters. Can you see the tension here? We have, a, have an expectation, but we cannot fulfill that because we're not up to it even ourselves. And so Bonhoeffer is saying we have to be very careful when we dream dreams for other people and place our own expectations on them because ultimately we will be the ones who will suffer because we will suffer the deep disappointment of thinking that Christian community is an impossible dream. Yeah? But this isn't what Paul is saying. Paul says this, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Paul is saying, take a deep level of responsibility for your own behavior. And if your behaviors aren't as good as they should be, you need to look at the person of Christ, who humbled himself by coming out of heaven, giving up every power that he had, so that he could be taken to a cross to die in our place. I mentioned last week that the reason why this book, Philippians, was, so this letter, Philippians, was written to this community at this time is because there were two women, Yodia and Syntyche, who we'll meet later on, who are at odds with one another. They're in disagreement. They're arguing. And I suspect that these words here, do everything without grumbling or arguing, is directly pointed towards these two women who weren't getting on. And he says, then you will shine like stars in this crooked and depraved generation. What Paul is saying is that with Christ in you, you should stand apart. You should be separated out. Where others provide something dim, you provide something bright. Just this last week, Great Barrier Island has been declared a, a conservatory, a light conservatory. In other words, it's a, a place on the planet where they are intentionally keeping the light low, the same as they do around Lake Tekapo. It's a light conservatory area there as well. So that you can see, without any hindrance, the bright, bright lights of the stars. Well, I would love to declare Bethlehem Baptist a bright light conservatory where people will and do come in here and say, you know, the folks in this church community, they shine with something bright in their lives. They have something going on, which I want to be a part of. Because Paul is saying, as you shine, as you get on with one another, as you work in this whole area of forgiveness, of agreement, of maybe more forgiveness, of understanding one another, then you will begin to shine because you're a community that is distinct from other communities. 
And God sets a really, really high bar for us because this bar is all about creating us more and more into the image of Christ. The biggest challenge we face, we'll always face in church life, is that God will use the people sitting next to you to refine you. Now, I'm not talking directly about your husband or your wife. Okay. And so, therefore, we go on and we read this. It says a bit more. <clears throat> All right. This must be enough for today. This ain't working. What have we got going on up there? Okay, we've run out of words. <laughs> I know why. <laughs> Whenever we have a, a call for a child, we lose the uh, PowerPoint. Did that just go up? It did. Okay, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Paul is saying, you are the fruit of my work. I will be able to boast on that day of judgment because I'll be able to look back at the church and say, the church is better off because I have been here. And each one of us have that opportunity to be in exactly that same place. We will be able to boast about where we've invested our time, invested our energy, invested our relationships by being able to demonstrate to others how it is that we live our Christian lives. And then Paul says something really amazing to wrap up, and I'll finish on this. He says, But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Now, this sacrifice and service that Paul's referring to here brings us back to images of the Old Testament where an animal sacrifice was made in the temple for sins. But Paul is referring to the sacrifice and service, and I think there's every reason to suggest he's talking here about this absolutely generous offering that was made by the Macedonians and by the Philippians at this time. And Paul says, and... <clears throat> Um, he is being poured out like a drink offering on that sacrifice. And that's an image from the Old Testament, and I want to show it to you to finish. From Numbers, he, the instruction is about how to bring this particular offering. He said, With each lamb for the burnt offering of the or the sacrifice, prepare a quarter of a hin of wine, that's about a liter of wine, as a drink offering. With a ram, prepare a grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a third of a hin of olive oil and a third of a hin of wine as a drink offering. Offer it as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. So Paul's saying here, this offering that you took and gave to the Jerusalem church is like an animal being sacrificed. It cost you something. And just like the oil and the wine being poured out on top of it, which creates a, a beautiful aroma unto the Lord, Paul says, on your sacrifice, I'm like the wine being poured out. I see what you have done, and because I've been able to lead you, I've discipled you, I've led you to faith, my life has been poured out upon that sacrifice. And my life, because of your work, now becomes an aroma that pleases God. And it's a beautiful image, isn't it, of intergenerational discipleship, of maybe what we saw here with the Peterson family earlier on. Three generations of faith. But for Paul, he's saying as a leader, I have invested in you, and now I have the right to boast about you. I have the right to see that my life has been poured out, and that in itself is a, a beautiful offering unto the Lord. So, 
we are filled. We are filled with the will and filled with the purposes of God. Let's pray. Why don't we stand? Father, as we see these images of Old Testament life, we see how it is that you've given us a picture of what pleases you. Lives poured out, one for another, across generations. Even when we live under the intimidation and the fear and trembling of persecution, Lord, we know that you delight in us as we continue to push forward the kingdom of God and perpetuate your will in each other's lives and in the community around us. And so, God, we we thank you for these images. We thank you that we're reminded that as we pour our lives into other people's lives, you receive that like an aroma, a sweet drink offering poured out on the sacrifice of others' lives. That is a sweet aroma to your nostrils that brings you pleasure. And so, God, we... We don't look at our salvation through the eyes of fear and trembling, but we acknowledge that with those that we are called to get along with, those who we're called to do life with, we bring about something absolutely spectacular, like bright lights in the sky. Our relationships are are seen and, and, and understood as something unique and special because we do the hard yards, Lord, wherever we can of putting things right. And so we bless you, Lord, and thank you for the image of what it means to be in fellowship, that we can love you and serve each other, not that we would condemn our brothers and sisters for what they aren't, but that we can continue to look to you for who you are. So we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.